Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay my respects to Elders past and present, sovereignty never ceded, treaties never signed. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I am thrilled to be joined by two exceptional poets. I'll be joined by Jazz Money, who is a poet and artist of Wiradjuri heritage. She has just released a collection uh, that is in both English and Wiradjuri called How to Make a Basket. And it explores how places and bodies hold memories and the ways in which her ancestors walk with her and through her. And later on in the show, I'll be joined by Andy Jackson to speak about his new collection called Human Looking, which encompasses poems of disability and disfigurement. And he speaks of the ways that bodies brush up against the medical and surgical systems and the ways in which they attempt to correct those bodies. A brilliant collection. I'm so thrilled to have these two poets joining me for my last show of the year. I really hope you can stay with me. You're listening to Triple R. Up next, we're going to be speaking with Jazz Money to speak all about her new collection, How to Make a Basket. First, you must begin with the grasses. First, you must tend the blades, the sweet small shoots. First, you must make healthy the soil, care for this place. Tend with fire, carry the seeds. First, you must make the land right. First, you must love your mother. It's an excerpt from Jazz Money's debut poetry collection, How to Make a Basket. It is a collection that weaves together beginnings, longings and reflections of queer love, of black joy, of protest, of, de- of defiance and of strength. Jazz Money is a Wiradjuri woman from the central south, New South Wales, uh, currently residing on Gadigal land. Jazz joins me this afternoon to speak about their collection. Jazz, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Beth. Uh, it's it's such a pleasure. You know, this this poem that I've just taken an excerpt from is, you know, it's the title poem of the book and it, it really strings together this idea that encapsulates, I think, what a lot of the book is about, which is that interconnectedness of, of place, of, of people, of purpose, and the ways in which they, you know, depend on each other and affect one another. Jazz, can you speak to this idea of, of how to make a basket? Yeah, thank you. Um, I wrote this poem, How to Make a Basket, at the end of, well, in the midst of the bushfire crisis. I was living in the Blue Mountains um, in in, Sydney, in New South Wales and was just really sad. Mm. <laughs> and I wrote this piece and I was so frustrated and angry at the way that things were happening around me. 
um, the mismanagement of country and land by our government and just the neglect. And weirdly, the poem turned out to be really generous and kind mm. at the end. And I felt like I learned so much in the process of writing it. And it felt very emblematic of what the process of writing the book was like, really. You know, mm. I, I am very frustrated at what it is to live in the Australian colony mm. in the early 21st century. But I'm also constantly reminded of the love and joy that surrounds us as well. Mm. And can you tell me a bit more about that? What does your writing practice look like? Has it, I suppose, changed since you first started writing the poems for this book? (laughs) So much. Um, I started writing years ago, like maybe five or six years ago, very much as a sort of uh, way of self-soothing or sort of figuring out how I was feeling about things. Um, and it was very personal and I never ever intended for anyone else to read <laughs> a single thing I'd written. But once I started, I got kind of addicted to it and mm. I found that I was able to make so much more sense of the world and my place in it once I put things down on the page. And I think that's one of the things that poetry is really amazing at. It can make complex and tricky things sort of sit together and feel less frightening. It doesn't have to be resolved, but but it has this ability to make things feel somehow contained and manageable. Mm. And so that's how I started writing. And once I, I was living overseas at the time, and once I came back, I sort of started realising that actually Australia has this really beautiful, abundant poetry community and that I was like kind of keen to get to know more about it. So I started very shyly um, submitting poems to certain places. And once they started getting read, it really changed the way I wrote. I stopped writing so much for myself and my own sort of self-realisation, but started being a bit more confident in using a voice that was outward-focused mm. and um, writing to connect with others. Mm. And, I mean, this collection... You know, it won the David uh, Uniapen Award, which is a very prestigious um, poetry award. I suppose when you are learning to write for other people to read as opposed to writing for yourself, what does that sort of recognition mean to you for your first collection? It feels like a lot of responsibility in a way. You know, it's such an honour to be published and to win something like the David Nyapon Award is is just the most tremendous honour. I I think some of Australia's greatest writers have come out of that award. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't, you know, want to take that lightly at all. And um, thinking about creating a book that would potentially be held by people and read by them is, is quite an overwhelming honour. So I, I wanted to um, really invest a lot of care in what that engagement with an audience was going to look like, mm. which I hope comes across in the different elements of the book, not just the words, but the way it's laid out and the way that the pages come together. Um, yeah, it was it was very exciting to be able to put it together. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, as a reader, it definitely has. It's a very beautiful object as well as, you know, having such rich meaning um, with the words. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Um, But I suppose first, do you want to, uh, yeah, read one of your poems for us? Sure. Um, How about I read Nargan? Perfect. Which it's quite a short poem. Nargan is our word, Wiradjuri word for um, the break of day. And the poem goes... When I read through the confines of English, I'm free. All the best things I write are straining at the edges of the colonizer's language. Mm. It's such a it's such a powerful and punchy <clears throat> poem 
And it's something I think that encapsulates something that I've loved through reading your poems is learning, um, you know, a little a little bit of Wiradjuri language. You know, it's peppered throughout the collection. Sometimes it's translated, sometimes it's not. It kind of changes. I'm interested when you are playing with English and Wiradjuri language, does, does accessing that Wiradjuri language shift your relationship um, with your poetry and, and how you express yourself through words? Yeah, I'm... It absolutely does. I'm I'm very much on a language learning journey with Wiradjuri, but the more I learn, the more I fall into it and realize just how beautiful and powerful and poetic the language is. Mm. And as someone who was raised in English, it's just so clunky. And um, I feel like I'm obvi- I'm often doing a disservice to the Wiradjuri by trying to translate it into English. Mm. Um, it's such a beautiful, beautiful language to work with and it's a real honour to be able to have it throughout the collection um, mm. and for that I'm very, very indebted to my elders and senior people and in particular Uncle Stan Grant Senior whose Wiradjuri Language Dictionary is very much the tool that I and many people I love use to reconnect with our language. Mm. And do you feel that, um, I suppose, using uh, your mother tongue or Wiradjuri language allows you I suppose, yeah, more more fluidity or more space to be able to to play and, and experiment that is, as you say, in this kind of breaking through the confines or the container that, that is English. Wiratri has this great gift, I think, and I think all First Nations languages do, of... Um, reconnecting people very quickly back to place mm-hmm. and centering what it is that we're actually doing because once you hear the real language and the real words, it sort of ruptures any colonial fabric that I think is sitting on top or around mm-hmm. those words. It's it's this real sort of like umbilical cord back to place. Mm. And I, I suppose I'm interested in that. For you, how, um, you know, you said that you're on a journey learning Wiradjuri. How connected is that learning um, to, yeah, to a sense of place? Oh, it's 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 one and the same. I was, I was talking with some friends about this the other day, about, you know, learning our languages or First Nations friends and, and just how how you sort of feel like you're, traveling the whole way back, mm-hmm. you know, to be with your ancestors when you speak your languages. And um, it's just the most incredible gift. And we're, we're living in a, a time of, like, huge language restoration after, mm-hmm. you know, 100 or so years of really violent attacks against our language. And it's a really powerful thing to be part of a um, generation that is able to speak our languages and to celebrate that. Mm. Yeah, there's so much uh, imbued meaning in, um, I suppose, English as the colonizer's language. You know, there seems like throughout this collection, this kind of simultaneous disregard for English as, you know, something that was uh, that is placed um, on you as a First Nations person. And, you know, I suppose that frustration of the colonial legacy of that, um, but also perhaps the language that you're most fluent in. What's it like straddling that tension within your poetry? Uh, it can be actually really fun <laughs> <laughs> because it's really fun, I think, to challenge English mm-hmm. where we live in a society that takes it so much for granted as as the language of operations um, and co- connection and communication. And uh, to be a writer who is able to sort of play with 
the sort of frailties of English or poke holes at um, at the places where it is lacking is is very liberating. I think as someone who has a very complex relationship with English, I really relish those opportunities, and I also just love getting to work with Wiradjuri. But also, you know, I think English has a lot to teach us and it's such a great way of connecting with each other, but being able to bring those things together and be okay with that sort of messiness is Mm. one of the, I think, the great joys I get from writing poetry. Mm. I mean, I feel that I feel that even as a reader and kind of having to uh, to try and piece together parts that I perhaps don't understand through, you know, the the Rodgery language, I think, um, yeah, that just that permission to exist in the messiness between um, those languages. It it just feels very powerful. Um, Yeah, as a reader, I've really enjoyed that. Um, Jazz, would you like to, yeah, maybe read another poem? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This one is quite different. It's called Echoes. Um, And (laughs) this is one of the ones that I wrote sort of before I thought people would read my writing. It's a bit of a... um, I don't know, sexy, angsty poems, perhaps. (laughs) Your mark goes beyond my flesh, beyond two neat rows of indentations, not piercing, though designed to, not piercing today, a memory I can touch. I see those teeth marks upon my speech, my thoughts, myself. I conduct myself with echoes of flesh, echoes of your flesh upon my own, where we would lie, heart to heart pressed, a jaw of neat fitting pearls. You're calcified within me, a totem, a talisman, a chanting curse, no longer separate from the person we made within this echoing chamber. Mm. It's Jazz Money reading from How to Make a Basket. Uh, if you've just joined us, that poem is Echoes. Jazz, there feels like there's this beautiful intimacy um, in this poem and, and some of these poems, you know, both between, I suppose, the self and, and lovers and also country, you know, just that line, a memory I can touch. It really speaks to this closeness and tangibility. Um, what's it like revealing these ideas on the page? Um, I found it really tricky, actually, trying to make sense of everything I'd written about when I was pulling together this manuscript mm. because I feel like it does cover a lot of themes. There's a lot of love and frustration, and I think it really came to me. It, it was ways of sort of telling story and ways of accessing memory and what memory does to us as people and that's not just you know the memories that we hold of ourselves or of people that we love but also the memories that country holds Mm. and the ways that certain stories have and haven't been told in this colony and I think as a queer First Nations person there's a very rich landscape to draw on there Mm. Um, and probably too much at times but um, I hope that that means that someone who picks up this book does have an entry point um, because there is a lot of sort of different topics that are covered. Hopefully there is something that resonates with everyone. Mm. I have no doubt. Uh, you know, something about this poem and, you know, it carries throughout the collection that I really love is the the typography of the collection. You know, this book as an object and is something to 
be physically interacted with. You know, as, as I'm reading, I'm kind of moving the book around to, to read your words and to engage with these very deliberate aesthetic choices. I'm interested in that interplay between language and the physical space that it occupies on a page and I suppose how you see that connection. Do you, do you think that the physicality of, of how the words sit on a page does that come when you're first writing or is that part of the editing process for you? Uh, I love that question because I really loved getting to create an object as much as I mm. loved getting to create a book. Um, and for me, a lot of the... I'm not very good with grammar, which is actually part of the reason that I write the way that I do, is I find it much easier to work with the page as a mm. spatial object to to get across what I'm trying to say rather than using, you know, full stops and commas and all that. Um, so that's part of the writing process for me is very much just, you know, working with the page because that's how my brain works. Mm. But then there are other poems in this collection, um, you know, that I always imagined having a certain shape or sitting a certain way, but then others that something was off with them and I, and I worked with the most incredible editor, Ellen Van Niven, mm. to pull this collection together. And there were a couple of times I remember Ellen saying to me, like, something's missing in this in this particular poem. Like, it needs to feel more like what it's about. And and those sort of nudges at times um, really lent me to thinking about form and function again and, and how it is that, you know, it's not chance that we set things out on the page like this. It, it, it should echo the experience in some way. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was really fun getting to do that and... And I think, you know, I don't know if I'll get to write another book. I hope I do. But um, I wanted to really make the most of this opportunity. And, and if I knew that it was going to be in people's hands, I wanted it to be really an object that was a tactile engagement and really played with the form of what it is to be a book. Um, because, you know, I, I can write... I love when a poem's online. I love when it can sit in different spaces. But to create something that has that really intimate engagement with a person, that sort of tactility... Is, um, it's really beautiful. Mm. And I find it's just challenging as a reader. I think, you know, I suppose it's also about me learning more about poetry and more about engaging with language in this way, but um, it feels like it demands something of the reader, even if it's just turning the page and just thinking about maybe why you've done that or what it means or maybe it doesn't, I don't know, it, it, maybe sometimes it's not imbued with heaps of meaning and it's about something else, but I... I really love that as a kind of challenge for myself. Um, so I've yeah really loved that aspect of, of this book. Um, Jazz, I'd love to touch on your work with Ellen Van Neven because, I mean, what an amazing poet. I've been lucky enough to have them on the show for their collection, uh, Throat. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that uh, collaboration and, and what that looked like? Uh, well, Ellen's amazing and just the most generous, beautiful light, I think, in the poetry industry. Um, I mean, and poetry is full of beautiful people, but I, I was so honoured and fortunate to get to work with Ellen. Um, it very much came about because my deadly publishers, UQP, uh, got in touch initially and said, you know, would would you like to work with um not one of our editors, our in-house editors, would you like to work with a First Nations queer poet? <laughs> I was like, um, of course. <laughs> who, who do you have? And they said, how about Ellen? And I was like, that would just be a dream. And um, they just had the most 
thoughtful, engaged feedback and really helped me understand what it is to sort of shape a collection as a whole and the journey that you're trying to take someone on, not through each individual poem, though each individual poem should do that as well, but to actually think really about these sort of broader questions about what it is to write and how we do it. Mm. It just makes me think there's such a rich... um community of um, First Nations poets, of poets uh, in general in this country that, you know, that your I think this book kind of sits within. It, it reminds me of one of your poems. Um, if I write a poem, which kind of speaks to the way that I see it, speaks to that idea of, I suppose, the value of, um, of choosing your words, of the legacy in which you sit within. Um, and yeah, just where your words sit within this kind of broader context of, of literature, of story, of country, as you've kind of mentioned. I, you kind of touched on this at the start, but how does the role of responsibility sit with you when thinking about your poetry? I think that now that I do have people that read my writing, there is a I I very much feel a sense of responsibility to use that voice and use that platform, however small it might be, to try and, you know, bring justice or bring conversation or bring, you know, focus to issues that I think are really critical to the different communities that I'm a member of, that I'm a member of, but also, you know, I think the things that are plaguing our society more largely. And and that poem that you just mentioned, if if I write a poem... um, I wrote when I was really grappling with that sort of level of responsibility and trying to consider what it is to write and be published and if it comes from a place of ego and mm. what that what drives that or if there's something more to it. And, and what I really ended up landing on is that, you know, uh, there is responsibility and power that comes from our words and the way that we tell them and... I come from a legacy of great storytellers, but also a lot of people whose voices weren't allowed to be heard. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to not take seriously what an incredible gift it is that so many people fought for me to be able to speak. Mm. Jazz, it's been such a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Congratulations um, on your collection and thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That is Jazz Money there, and we're talking all about uh, their debut collection, How to Make a Basket. It is out now through the University of Queensland Press. Up next, we're going to be joined by poet Andy Jackson to speak all about his new collection, Human Looking. You're in Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Being different is exhausting, whether insult or pity. Welcome that weight I keep telling myself as if repeating makes it true. The impulse to fight being different is exhausting. Be feeble, be ignorant, lose. This is what I keep telling myself as if repeating it makes it true. Experts prescribe affirmations, courage. Instead, I'll be feeble, be ignorant, lose.
This is an excerpt from a poem in Andy Jackson's new collection, Human Looking. These poems trace disabled bodies, ill bodies, disfigured bodies with tenderness, intrigue and love. They expose violence, pain and prejudice with vulnerability and strength and push back against the medical and surgical gaze that often try to contain these bodies. It's a heartfelt and raw collection and I'm so thrilled um, to be joined by Andy this afternoon. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's a sheer pleasure. Like it's um, beautiful. I didn't. I I knew you were going to quote, but I didn't see it coming. So it's <laughs> beautiful and moving to just hear that intro. So thanks, Beth. Oh, it's, uh, it's uh, such a pleasure to to read your words. Um, you know, Andy, I'd love if we can start with a reading um, from yourself. Uh, I believe you're going to read the the poem that opens the collection. Yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> so this poem is called Opening. And it kind of explains itself, but it's one of those daydream poems where something that happens in your head slides into reality. The incision, mine anyway, begins below the back of the neck and ends just above the coccyx. Surgical stitches quietly dissolve, leave a thick scar, a blurred insistent line. As each layer of skin dies, it whispers to the next the form and story of the wound. This is how I continue, intact. Yet now, as I strain to lift this too heavy object, the long suture ruptures in my head, the scar tearing open. You might think this visceral confession only an image of mine, but you are becoming this unstitching, this sudden opening. It's Andy Jackson uh, reading the first poem of Human Looking. Andy, this poem opens the collection um, and I think it opens many of the ideas that follow, so it does feel like an apt place to start. You know, your writing is an embodied form of poetry. You really, you write about what it means to inhabit your body. I'm interested, how has literature of the body uh, influenced you or changed the way that you think about your work? It's a really interesting question. I think when I first started writing poetry, it was really the the spoken word scene, the live poetry reading scene that I was in, and I really wasn't aware of anyone else doing it, mm-hmm. of really talking about, about bodily difference and about disability. So that was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And so I kind of did it because I had to do it. It was so, like, it was a way of... Yeah, maybe similar to what Jazz was talking about, sort of grounding yourself Mm. and feeling like actually you deserve to define who you are and to speak and be honest about it. So I needed to do it. But I think in the last sort of five, ten years, there's been a real wave of kind of, I guess you could say disability poetry. There's been some amazing anthologies that have come out of the States and the UK and here locally as well. And seeing some of those voices have come up have made me more sort of willing to own that as being a community mm. that I belong to. So it's, um, yeah, that it's shaped my sense of being not just out there on my own doing, doing this kind of obscure thing, <laughs> but, yeah, that it's part of a whole connection of people around the globe and connected to all the struggles that we're going through. So it's... um. Yeah, that's that's been a really affirming thing, I think. Mm. I mean, as a reader, I've definitely noticed that kind of proliferation of, of bodily writing um, definitely over the last couple of years, but 
before that as well. I'm interested, I suppose, in in relation specifically to poetry, um, yeah, what you've seen and perhaps how has that changed the way that you um, write about your body? Yeah, that's a good one. Like I, I think what's what it does. I think the probably the most influential thing for me was this American anthology called um, Steppers, which had a real diversity of uh, poetry. So ranging from really lyrical stuff, experimental work, some of them very direct and honest, others more elusive. And so for me, I think it's sort of freed me up to say, well, I'll do whatever I want that's specific to me. Mm. So that is going to explore the things that I want to explore. Um, and this sense, I guess, of trying to capture in a poem deformity, what that is. Mm. So, you know, it, it's a visual thing. So how does it work on the page? But also it's a relational thing. It's not something that's objective. Like, uh, you know, it's something that we as a culture and a society define what is deformed, what is beautiful, what's normal. So, yeah, it's that relational thing that I've always been really interested in, that a poem is not just an object. I mean, it is an object, but it's also, it's you more. know, a place where we meet each other. Mm. Yeah, I I love that because I, I think so much uh, of this book, you know, you really speak in relation to, you know, other poems or texts or photos that have um, made moral judgments about what a body is and looks like and what beauty is. You know, one that stands out to me is uh, the one that you wrote um, about Frankenstein and you kind of, yeah, again, challenge those notions of, of what it means to put a moral judgment on, you know, the ex- aesthetics of existing in these piles of flesh that we inhabit. Mm. I'm interested when you are kind of writing to or against those texts that have made these claims on, on a, gro- a grotesque body or an other body, mm. Yeah, what, what's your kind of curatorial thinking? How do you decide which ones to speak to? I think it's funny. It's such an intuitive thing. It's really hard to articulate, mm. but it's something right in the gut where you feel like you can't not respond. Mm. So, you know, there's a kind of momentum to it. There were poems or, you know, artworks or visual work that I tried to respond to, you know, in the last couple of years, but it just didn't quite work. And it, it usually works when there's some kind of problem or dilemma or discomfort that I feel in my own experience or in my own ideas about what I think about that whole world. Mm. So when it's really straightforward, it, it doesn't seem to create anything for me. It's usually when I'm trying to wrestle with something and sort of beat it into submission mm. <laughs> um, that it starts to take form, you know. Mm. So. Yeah, it's really intuitive. I didn't expect to write that poem um, in response to Mary Shelley's book. But, you know, I, I ended up reading the novel again and being reminded of the the agency of the monster, you know, and his incredible complexity as a character. Mm. It's like, yeah, I can imagine him inhabiting his subjectivity. So all the words in that poem are straight from the novel. So it's it's an erasure poem where I've just gotten rid of all the superfluous words and kept the ones that I can connect with. Mm. So yeah, each each poem had its own form. I think for that. Yeah, I am. I love that kind of style of poetry because it feels like you are 
um, changing the authority of the text or um, giving changing the power dynamics of of how somebody can speak about beauty or can speak about a body you know in many ways it kind of feels like you're hand in hand in solidarity with Frankenstein and and with other people that have been othered or you know objectifies in 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 these ways do you feel like by doing that you're able to yeah change that power um that these texts have, have tried to put on what bodies are and can be yeah, look, I think so. I think that's um, a huge part of it, where you do feel like you're just nudging it a little bit. You know, of course, realistically, um, these things are huge, and so they kind of require more than than literature. But, you know, poems are powerful, partly because they do disrupt things, um, but also for this element of solidarity that someone else can read it and go, Yes, yeah, I I feel that too. Even if they didn't feel it before the poem, they connect with it. And, you know, there's always that thing about people talk about preaching to the converted, but I think sometimes that's actually fine mm. <laughs> because you're actually wanting to affirm your community and say your discomfort with the dominant way of seeing beauty or seeing bodies, your discomfort with that is valid and let's keep going with that discomfort and see what we can shift. So, yeah. And like you said, if you're writing back to these archives, which you're saying, you know, the proliferation of, of this kind of writing, if it's only happened in the last decade, you know, perhaps now you're just allowing for more nuance um, within these conversations as opposed to perhaps being um, seemingly one of the only ones writing this kind of thing. So that seems um, very powerful in and of itself. Um, Andy, you've uh, written uh, a bunch of poems in here that kind of um, use fragments of, of medical speak, um, of surgical speak, of the way doctors have, have spoken about your body. Um, do you feel like when you're able to control the narrative that you can kind of reclaim some of those experiences that you've had? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those dynamics um, between kind of medical system and patient, it's its an incredible imbalance of power. So uh, even when something is completely necessary, and I've had a lot of procedures, well, not a lot, but I've had some procedures and they were all necessary and I am glad that I was able to have them. Uh, I'm probably still alive because of the medical system. So, you know, that's, that's one side of it. But that imbalance of power does mean that almost like you actually don't really have a voice mm. and so there's an element of kind of fleshing it out to say well look it's actually not just a procedure it's a human encounter and it's really it's visceral and it's psychological and existential as well um yeah and it, it doesn't remove the sense of discomfort or strangeness but it does give you a sense of going well actually yeah again this is this is valid. It's okay to be to be noticing the dynamic here mm. and to be able to put your own words on it. Yeah. Yeah, as I was reading, I, I found myself wanting doctors or medical professionals to read these words because, as you said, the ramifications of the way other people in, in those very clear, powered situations dictate the way in which you feel about yourself, particularly if it's happened over a long period of time and you're constantly coming up against this. Do you hope that your work reaches, you know, medical professionals? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also definitely medical professionals, um, especially 
people that deal in genetics um, and in kind of quote-unquote corrective surgery. All that stuff is, um, yeah, often really necessary, but also such a tender, intimate thing. So, yeah, to humanise that encounter is really important. I definitely also want to reach people who are in similar situations that I've been in, you know, people who can kind of, who are facing it and are trying to uh, find their own way in it to orient themselves. And probably also there's people who are outside that world entirely mm. who think maybe they know what it's like to be disabled or or different, but they probably don't. Mm. So to make, uh, to, I guess, to offer the possibility to other people that, yeah, it's more complex than you think. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are speaking with Andy Jackson all about his new poetry collection called Human Looking. Andy, would you like to read another poem? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, we were talking, I guess, about the two sides of the medical system. And this one is called Lines from an ECG. It's for my dad who died when I was two. Um, he had the same genetic condition as I have. So the poem is about having to go back every year and get checked to make sure um, my heart's still okay. Mm. So this is Lines from an ECG. The heart is not a precision instrument. Listen, now it seems to stop and start and stop and start as if ambivalent. No metronome, but a poem of muscle with an iambic limping. I am, I am almost the age you were when yours failed and you fell from a hospital bed into the unstead. Diastole and systole, how these chambers fill with blood and love, then urgently send them back out. The heart's door, always swinging on its hinges. Surely the aorta must tire of this back and forth, contract, relax, old unsolvable argument of flesh. Between each beat, a tiny pause, spark that will one day expand to fill the whole body. The problem, not any imperfection in its rhythm, but how too much pressure can open a tear in the wall. Yes, I must get checked each year, each year. And now as the ECG turns my insistent meter into sound, I hear whale song sped up, then the slow motion crack of a whip, the cold silence underneath. It's Andy Jackson reading from Human Looking, this poem, Lines from an ECG. Andy, even in this poem, um, I suppose the language of imperfection and problem still kind of points to what we're talking about with this, I suppose, medicalised way of looking at the body. I'm interested, I suppose, when, you know, you are kind of constantly competing with other people's judgment of your body. Do you feel like this kind of writing, um, I suppose, adds to this legacy of, of what it means to resist this kind of singular, perhaps, framework of, of in which to kind of view the functionality of a body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's tremendous pressure on certainly on disabled people, but on all of us to adhere to a certain model of being productive, being you know working, 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 mm-hmm. um, get having being in a job, doing even if we're not working to be kind of pushing ourselves and to be functional and to be beautiful and presentable and all that stuff. So I, sometimes I think the pressure can go both ways too, where you therefore, in a response to that, you want to be, um, you know, uh, proud of your body 
um, you know, everything's okay now. You know, disability pride, I think, is wonderful. But I also think it's okay to sit in the middle and to be uncomfortable and aware that we're, we haven't solved it yet. Mm. Um, so, yeah, these poems kind of talk back to the dominant ideas about what's appropriate for bodies to look like and to do. Uh, so it, it pushes back against that, but it's not kind of celebrating the victory of <laughs> of any of this. It's right in the middle of it. And, yeah, I think hopefully it's this kind of balance between um, poems that are disturbing but comforting at the same time, you know. Mm. I yeah. think there's such importance and power in kind of existing within that messiness that, you know, bodies aren't neat. I, I know no one that has this fixed relationship with their body, you know, and I think, yeah, being yeah. able to portray that on the page is really, is so, is so valid and I think um, affirming, definitely. Yeah. Um, Andy, you know, you're a very well-established poet. You've written many books. I know that this is just one of many collections for you. I'm interested when you look at human looking where do you see this collection kind of sitting within your wider portfolio of work yeah look it's really interesting I if I think back I think when I first started writing I thought maybe on some level subconsciously I thought I'll get this body stuff out of the way you know (laughs) and then I'll move on um but of course not I mean where I'm still in this body and the way I other people relate to me and the way that I relate to myself and to others, it's still there in the foreground and I'm forced to reckon with it all the time. Mm. So some of the same themes from the early work is still there. Um, Probably what's changed is that the form is more important for me now, Um, what shape the palms take physically on the page and emotionally as it moves around. Mm. That stuff is much more maybe integrated. Mm. It was sort of maybe a second thought in the early days and I think now it's more right from the start it's kind of part of what the poem is I'm thinking about what shape it is and form and content and how they connect to each other yeah so that's probably where it's gone and I think it's probably it's the most um it's the hardest I've worked on a collection of poems over the years um some of the others have kind of just come out quite easily but this was a lot of work Mm. Well, I mean, I feel like as a reader, you can not tell that it's a lot of work, but there's just so much thought that's gone into that, um, into this collection. Andy, I know that as well as being a poet, you are an educator. And I'm interested, how do you feel like those kind of practices play off one another? Not, I suppose not just practically, but Mm. in the way that you engage with words and the construction of ideas. Yeah, look, I I love, I mean, I, I do a fair bit of mentoring and I do teaching at sort of universities and writing organisations. And that stuff, it just reminds me of the diversity of the poetry world that really um, there isn't one way of doing things and it it, it keeps me kind of on my toes, uh, keeps me realising that, um, yeah, that there are lots of different ways of doing it and part of those other voices can start to filter into mine and can jolt me to to work harder or to work less you know to kind of relax a bit as well so that's really encouraging especially seeing new work people really at the very start of their journey um that raw messy kind of preformed stuff is actually yeah it's so vital that's where all culture kind of comes from and where all ideas come from is that really kind of rough 
um, inarticulate thing. It's, mm. it's, yeah, yeah. It must, it. Yeah, it must be nice to kind of sit at both ends of the spectrum because you've been doing it for a very long time and seeing, uh, yeah, more work come through. Uh, Andy, recently I had uh, Maxine Beniba-Clark on the show and we were talking about poetry and I suppose it's proliferation um, or in the last couple of years or whether it's just that um, more people have an appetite of it. I'm interested in your view do you see that poetry is kind of being received more by, I suppose, a mainstream audience? And, and if so, do you think it's about the aesthetics or the craft that's changed or do you just think it's about the way that people are engaging with it? Mm. Yeah, look, it's a huge question. I think I do feel like there is more of a sense that poetry is starting to, you know, get out into the broader community um, a little bit. You know, of course, not hugely, but it, it, it's there. Mm. Part of that, I think, is the kind of democratization of things where certainly live poetry, performance poetry, slam poetry has been a way in for people of marginalized communities to, you know, have a voice. And that therefore means that there are, the audience is more likely to be diverse as well. Mm. So, it's partly that, you know, some of the online world has fostered communities in ways that weren't possible when it was just pubs. Um, so there's lots of different things that intersect. But I do think, yeah, our, the poetry world is much more diverse than it used to be. And the publishing of poetry is more diverse than it used to be. And that's that's exciting. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's very exciting as a reader as well. Um Andy Jackson, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to read your work um, and to chat with you this afternoon. Thanks for your time. Oh, thanks very much. Great. Good to be here. Uh, Andy Jackson there. Human Looking is the poetry collection that we've just been speaking all about. It's out now through Giramondo Poetry. You're in Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website, 